Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. I got in here with 42 seconds to spare, (laughs) so we're ready to go. Last week we were interrupted in the middle of the show and we were talking about charity and I went back and edited that show. It'll become available uh, on the network. It was uh, interrupted somewhere in the phone lines. We were actually interrupted this morning's show trying to get it out, but we have, uh, I continued the recording and we'll make that available also on the network so everybody should go to Preparing You and join the network. And uh, we have a great deal of information available. And uh, with this day of information, uh, that there's all kinds of information out there. A lot of times looking for the truth is a needle in the haystack. So you have to go out and try to find what is true and what is not true. And people are got all kinds of solutions and and uh, remedies and uh, you know what will save you uh, your salvation is at stake you know your survival is at stake salvation and survival are actually very similar although a lot of people will tell you that salvation has to do with uh, your soul after you die well Jesus said the kingdom of heaven was at hand uh, he actually came and he said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. I'm going to appoint it to another group uh, that would bear fruit. And uh, and uh, he, when he was saying this, he was saying it to the Pharisees. And saying, I'm, uh, because what they were doing was not bearing fruit. It was actually making the word of God did not affect. And he explains all this. And he says it's related to there's what they call Corbin. And their Corbin was making the word of God to none effect. And the number of preachers out there who you ask, what was the Corbin and why was it making the word of God to none effect? And why was he taking the kingdom away from the Pharisees? And, and why did the Pharisees even have it? Why, why did, didn't the Sadducees have it as well? Didn't the, didn't the Zealots have it as well? I mean, they're all factions of, uh, the citizens of Judea, I mean, the citizens of Judea, I mean, Judea itself was the kingdom of God. It was what was left of the kingdom of God, theoretically. Because the kingdom of God at one time and the children of God were supposedly the Israelites. But of course, that needs defining. What does it mean to be an Israelite and be the sons of God? They, they called themselves the children of God, the sons of God. And uh, they were to be a priest to all nations. A priest in what religion? We're all supposed to be Jewish. We're all supposed to wear, you know, uh, phylacteries and uh, and and uh, prayer cloths and put a hat on our heads and all these traditions of the Jews. And and evidently we're supposed to pile up rocks and uh, kill sheep and set them on fire, and that makes God happy. Well, what have I told you? That's all a complete distortion. It's a fiction and a fraud. Because there was a a very large group of people at the time of Christ 
they were still somewhat in a minority. They were one of the larger groups, but still in a minority because they were so divided all over Judea, all over the world. But this one group had been around for at least 300 years, and it didn't have a single name. But it had certain identifying qualities, and that was the Essenes. And and that didn't mean that all saints were good, or but if you... If you really get into the Essene doctrine, which most people just say, oh, they, they washed a lot. And they lived out in remote areas. Well, actually, in almost every small town, there was a, a house that would be considered an Essene house. And it, it's likely that the Last Supper took place in such an Essene house. And we have, we've gone through and explained all the details that are actually in the scriptures that would suggest that that house was an Essene. But again, they didn't call themselves Essenes. That's a name that's been put on them by people like Josephus and and other modern people of the day. They were often called healers. They were called all kinds of stuff. But they were around for at least 300 years. It's amazing some of the philosophers that were also Essenes. And the only reason I mention it is by looking at all these different factions and what they were doing and what the Corbin of the Pharisees was and what it was doing. Because we should know. Because Corbin is a Hebrew word. We know what Corbin was in the Old Testament. Oh, we should know what Corbin was in the Old Testament. We know that the word Corbin means an offering. Sometimes it called a free will offering. Uh, but it was an offering. And of course, all, all the uh, offerings of uh, Israel were free will offerings. There were no forced offerings until Saul came along. And when Saul forced a sacrifice, forced an offering, the sacrifice is, that's what, that's another word for Corbin as a sacrifice, another way they translate it. It's a sacrifice, an offering. It's something you have, you give up, that's an offering. It's a sacrifice, same thing. But uh, he forced a sacrifice and because he forced a sacrifice, his kingdom was not going to stand. He was condemned. In the words of Samuel, that he forced a sacrifice. Now, he forced a sacrifice for a good reason. He forced a sacrifice because the Philistines were going to come. And, you know, he, he needed to get supplies and equipment, you know, to get his offering uh paid in so that he could buy what he needed to buy and to pay soldiers because some of the soldiers were getting paid. It was mostly a voluntary army for years and years, kind of a, kind of a militia. That's how it was organized. But uh, he, forced that, he forced that sacrifice. And because of that, his kingdom was not going to stand because that was so egregious. Well, wait a minute. Now, it couldn't be that bad because all the governments of the world force sacrifice. They call it taxation. They force uh, sacrifice offerings, and they call it taxation in order to do, sustain the government. And we we should sustain the government. I mean, we should, you know, they they do a lot of good things that help out society, and. They should, but you know, in Israel they didn't force the sacrifice, at least not till Saul. And how did they support the government? Well, like I said, militia, free will, uh, and free will offerings, and, and and what we call tithes. Tithes were free will offerings. I mean, you were supposed to tithe 
10%, but the, there's no record of people going and arresting people because they didn't tithe. Uh, there's, there's no penalty. I mean, you don't get jail time for not tithing. But tithing went to these guys they called the Levites, who were called out of this camp where they built the golden calf. And, you know, it was a, they call it actually a walled-in camp. But they, uh, they uh, had uh, the tithing, but it was voluntary. And then, who were you supposed to give the tithing to? Did, did, did some did the high priest send a minister to your congregation and say, "This is your minister, and uh, this is the guy you're supposed to tithe to"? No, I mean you you got to pick who you were going to tithe to, and I I just can assume, and there's actually evidence, but we won't go into all that. We won't get to the main topic of today, which is the solution. What Christ told us that would save us. Because, I mean, he said that we had to repent and had to think differently. And that thinking differently will tell us what the solution is. Because everybody thought they had a solution. I mean, the Pharisees thought they had a solution. And it involved the Corbin of the Pharisees. And it involved Herod. And it literally involved taxes. Because that's what the Corbin of the Pharisees was actually a tax by that time. And and we explain this in our articles on baptism, our articles on Herod. And, and we know that Herod was trying to set up a system of social welfare by registrating you, your, you as a member in your synagogue, in your synagogue, connecting itself with all the other synagogues in the, in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which they'd had for thousands of years. It'd been around since the days of Nimrod and before. It, it's one of the most common ways to organize the government. So it wasn't anything new to them. I mean, to the average American, they think like, yeah, that's something they did occasionally in the old days. No, it, it, at the American Revolution, they were organized in the tithings, which is ten families. You know, when they're going out and warning the militia that the British are coming, the Redcoats are coming, they're going out and notifying the tithings and the tithing men going out and notifying the hundreds men and the hundreds men are going out and notifying the thousands men. I mean, it's one of the titles of these are Aoldermen, a the Old English Aoldermen, which is where we get Eldermen today. That's where the word comes from because... It wasn't that long ago that everybody knew that that's how you had to organize if you were going to have a militia or you're going to have a fire department, if you're going to have schools. Because the militia is the guys who built most of the schools. And they didn't build it with tax dollars. They built it with contributions. Most most schools weren't collecting government money to be built. The local people were building them. And, and that... That was well known and well understood in early America in the 1820s, 1840s, 1850s. They give you all kinds of, and we do at Preparing You, we give you all kinds of examples where the schools were established by charity and hospitals were established by charity and the hospitals provided you with health care and that's the way they did it. I mean, we had my brother, uh, my brother, my son, uh, on one of our shows not too long ago, you can go back and listen to it, 
where he's talking about a doctor here in Lake County who set up a scholarship so that kids could go to college. And it was before World War II. Most of the kids that went to college during World War II were women because the men were all in the army. Or if they didn't get in the army, they were taking up the slack on the ranches, which were shorthanded because of all the other guys that were in the army. And so uh, it was usually the women who got to go to college. And we had more college graduates coming out of this poor Lake County. We always joke about the Depression, which was before World War II. Yeah, we had a Depression in Lake County, but we didn't notice because <laughs> it was so poor to begin with. Always was poor. Uh, although, you know, there was some money around. And, uh, but you know, you know, a well-to-do man back then didn't have near the options day to day as a poor man does today. You know, a poor man, I mean, he, he, he drives cars. They didn't have no cars back then. You know, back in the 1800s. Uh, you can get on a plane. Even a poor man can sometimes get on a plane and fly somewhere. Certainly get on a train. Well, you go back early 1800s, there were no trains. I mean, the, the dock came out here to Lake County, you know, probably, well, we know he came to America by boat and, and then he probably rode horses. I know, knew personally guys in this valley, this shows you how old I am, <laughs> who came into this valley on horseback. That's how they got here. Uh, they were born in America, but they weren't born in the United States. They were born in the Oklahoma Indian Territories, and they rode their horse to Summer Lake. And I used to work with them every day. He was a great storyteller. Oh, Jess. But, you know, time goes on, things change. But certain principles don't change. They stay the same. No matter what you do, they stay the same. So, what are those principles and how do they work? And what do you know about them? What what uh, can we learn about those principles of the kingdom that was a part of the early Christian salvation? And that they needed to learn this because Rome was in decline. Certainly, Herod's government was in decline. Israel was in decline. And Israel, you know, by... Just 30-some years after Christ was crucified, Israel was utterly destroyed. People were sold off into slavery. Christians actually got out of a lot of that. I mean, everybody talks about the persecution of the Christians. Yeah, they were persecuted from time to time. And that persecution kind of went up and down. I mean, some of the uh, emperors said, leave the Christians alone. Don't, Don't bother with the Christians. Let them do their own thing. Even some of the Jews. You know, like the, the the great scholar said, you know, if if they not be of God, they will fail. Leave them alone. And uh, Hillel and others like that, they 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 understood that. Well, if they're wrong, they will collapse. And and that's the way we should look at the rest of the world as well. But that doesn't mean we don't do anything. Repenting is the changing of the mind. We have to see something that the Pharisees did not see. Some of the Essenes did see it, and I believe a lot of the early Christians were Essenes, or what we call Essenes. 
So what were they doing? What were the early Christians doing? And this morning we did a show. Ended up being two hours in response to a uh, whole uh, response that I had been doing back and forth with uh, the uh, somebody on Facebook. And you can find that whole response. And eventually we'll put the recording up on the page. But it's the talk page for the page we have on Pentecost. And I will put the audio there. And uh, I'll probably reference that somewhere. But we have so much on Pentecost already, what they were doing on Pentecost. And, of course, basically in a nutshell, uh, Jesus Christ was king. Everybody knew it. Uh, everybody didn't want to admit it. Pharisees didn't want to admit it. But they sat in darkness. They couldn't see what Christ was. Real. They just thought, oh, this we're going to lose power. we got to get rid of this guy and all this stuff. Don't. Don't make him our king. But Pilate said, yeah, he's your king. And made a royal proclamation that Jesus Christ was king. The people said he was king when he came into Jerusalem. Angels said he was king. Shepherds said he was king. They all were testifying that he was king. And, of course, we've explained that he was doing things that only the king could do. He's in the the royal treasury. Well, what's he doing in the royal treasury? It tells us that in the Bible. He was instructing the ministers in the royal treasury. What's he doing in there? I mean, then there are locked doors. Is he just walking in off the street? And he's warning people about a central treasury where thieves and robbers can steal them. So that you end up going into the vault and you find out there's nothing in the vault. Now, one of the ways the city-states, and we've explained this, you go look up, you know, Golden Calf. The city-states had this same problem. You know, if you, you make all this gold coin, you put them in chests, and you put the chests in a vault. Who can guarantee that somebody didn't sneak in, open up the vault, and take out a bunch of gold coins, and then put a big rock in there, and then put the gold coins back on the top. You'd have to go through the gold coins every day to make sure that somebody wasn't stealing them. And so they had a remedy for this. You put all the gold in the statue. And then you... A lot of the city-states did this. And, of course, that's what the Israelites were doing. More led to believe by the movie... You know, Ten Commandments that they were building this golden calf and, and they were bowing down and worshiping it and there were girls in slanty, you know, scantily clad clothes that were running around it. That's all a fiction. That's part of that fiction and fraud. That, that's now, they were a lot more practical. Survival was difficult in the days of the Israelites. I mean, they're out there in the desert. I mean, it wasn't quite as deserty as it is now, but it was rough. And they're moving around, but they were getting wealthy and they were getting healthy and they were getting organized and they were becoming a viable force in the heart of the wilderness. And then they moved into Canaan and a lot of the Canaanites said, well, look at these guys. They're, you know, they weren't real tall. But they were in pretty good shape. I mean, there was some tall. I mean, I just heard statistics. Somebody looking at Josephus and calculating what Josephus, and he had access to Philos and a lot of other documents that we don't have access to. He came up with a figure for the height of Goliath. Made him 6'4". I got grandkids. (laughs) Teenage grandkids that are taller than that. Uh, What's the big deal? Six four? That's it? 
that's as big as he was. Now he might have been a little bit bigger. But if you're five foot two, six foot four is pretty big. And then, you know, my grandkids, they're all skinny, you know, that's, skinny runs in our family. But, those guys, he could have been, you know, three foot wide. Uh, I don't know, he could have been a really muscular big guy. He evidently, when Goliath came down to fight this little David, who might have been only four foot eight, we don't know how big David was, but he was a boy. And, it appears that people weren't real tall. We know the Romans weren't very tall. Now you go up to the Jutes and the Danites and stuff like that. And some of those guys were pretty big. But uh, anyway, the point is is that uh, he had to have help coming down. So he wasn't in great shape. And you know, according to according to the Bible and according to other historical references, there was at least four other Goliaths. You know, because he had, there were five brothers all together. And they were really big guys, however big they were. And they were, but that's why David goes and gets five stones, you know, out of the river. The one for Goliath and one each for his four brothers in case they came around. And later on in the Bible, they talk about one of them coming around. But David is really old. You see, these guys being kind of the Nephilim, they live for a long time. You know, kind of like mules live a hundred years. Mule lives a hundred years because it's kind of a crossbred. So, anyway, he comes around. David's too feeble to fight him, and he gets somebody else to fight him. I was always wondering, did the other guy use one of those four stones? I, I don't know. It may have it in the text. I just don't recall it. But it's not really the topic of today. The point is, is that practical Israelites, practical Jews understand you have to have practical solutions and burning up sheep on piles of stone is not very practical that didn't make God happy that's not what they were doing and you can go read our sacrifice of sophistry just look up sophistry and and read that I mentioned that this morning but what were they doing at Pentecost and like I said they were cast out of the welfare system set up by Herod and the Pharisees and now they're not going to have any kind of welfare system one of the things, you know, when they were on bondage in Egypt, they were dependent upon the government of Egypt for a lot of their benefits. You know, they, they, they refer to straw, and then they refer to going back and eating leeks and onions. Well, what did they use for money? And, and the reason they went into bondage in Egypt was they ran out of provisions and they had to sign a deal where one-fifth of their labor was going to go to the government in order to get free bread from the government. It was their system of free bread that brought them into bondage. And, of course, that free bread came from the Pharaoh. But say that free bread came from taking away from your neighbor. That the Pharaoh just, you know, he went around and he took a little bit from everybody. Maybe took a lot from the rich. Maybe took a lot from the Gauls. We've mentioned that before, how Caesar did that. And then he had a lot of wealth and so he could redistribute it amongst the Romans. And the Romans loved it. But what they were getting was taken away from somebody else. That's the benefactors who exercise authority that Jesus talks about. That's a different thing than just the Pharaoh giving you what he has, that he has stored up. 
But that's how everybody went into the bondage. And then, of course, as they needed more, then how did he get more? Well, he, impo- he imposed rigor upon the people. He impo- created taskmasters where they had to pay in a portion of their labor in one form or another. I'm sure some paid in with, you know, wealth, some sort of wealth. or But all the gold belonged to Pharaoh. So whatever they had for wealth, that they could go and they could, instead of me going to work on the pyramids or whatever or the, on the aqueducts for uh, 20% of the year, I'm sure some guys paid somebody else to do that. As a matter of fact, there's evidence to that in historical writings. But it's it's common sense that that's what it's going to do. I mean, all these people weren't in the mud pits dancing up and down. We know that because Israelites had all kinds of skills. They knew how to work metal. They knew how to uh, make... Uh, Weapons, they, they knew how to carve stone. So the Israelites were doing all kinds of jobs. They weren't just all in the mud pits making bricks. That was probably a, a good sizable, but the pyramids weren't made out of bricks. Most of the, the, the buildings weren't made out of bricks. They're made out of stone and somebody has to bring that stone and, and just like the, uh, people in Sparta, they they were making a lot of the equipment, making the food and growing all that. The Spartans were just making war. And that's a little bit the way that Egypt was setting things up. So there were, we know there were all kinds. I mean, they knew how to make the ark and knew how to inlay gold on the acacia wood that was made out of the ark. How did they know? They had artisans amongst them. But what they needed to learn before they left Egypt was they had to learn how to take care of one another without the government of Pharaoh. They still had to pay their tally of bricks, but they had to learn how to take care of one another without the benefits, the straw, the leeks and onions of the Pharaoh. They had to do for themselves. They needed to know that before they could become free. And then, in order to become free, they had to do it in earnest. I mean, they picked up and left Egypt. Not Egyptian jurisdiction, because at that particular time, Egyptian jurisdiction went all the way to Canaan. But they no longer were under the Pasana jurisdiction of Egypt, and they left Egypt. You say, well, wait a minute, they're still in the jurisdiction. Well, jurisdiction isn't always like you think. I mean, we know... 14, I think it was 14,000 families were kicked out of Rome under Claudius. They had to leave Rome, the city. They had to leave the empire. They just had to leave Rome, the city. Well, this is Israelites had to leave Egypt. They, the Egypt proper. But they were still within the jurisdiction. But they weren't going to get... They couldn't call 911. They couldn't rely on the government. They had to rely on themselves. What made them able to rely on themselves was that time they spent learning to rely on one another for their social welfare when hard times came. Because hard times came. There was famine. There was disease. There was fire and brimstone. There were all these things, the plagues, you know, water was a real problem. So they had to learn how to take care of one another so that they wouldn't. And then they picked up and left. They picked up with the old women. The old men, the crippled, the infirm. They they picked up with whatever livestock they had. 
you know, they show people herding ducks and geese when they left Egypt. And I think it's in the movie um, Ten Commandments. I have a visual image of that. I, I may be in the wrong movie, but it's the same Exodus. Well, they, they weren't moving with ducks and geese. <laughs> Moses didn't let them eat ducks and geese because that's where all your flu viruses come from. Bird flus and everything. They wouldn't let them eat pork. I mean, why don't you just see them herding pigs out there? Well, they didn't. And, and there was a reason why. There's a actually logical reason why Moses said, don't eat pork. And we've explained that. Because, like I said, Christ's Logos. Logos is mentioned hundreds of times in the New Testament. We translate it word most of the time. Not all the time. We translate it word. Uh, I think they also like correct speech or right speech. Uh, they, because what it means is right reason. Rima means word. And we've... We've got a whole page on that at Preparing You Can Study That. And we're going to do a recording exclusive to that and put that up. I've added to that tremendously. But at Pentecost, they started taking care of one another right away. It's like they're leaving Egypt, but they didn't have to leave Egypt. They were going to have to learn how to take... They didn't have to leave Judea. As a matter of fact, they not only did not have to leave Judea, they had to start taking care of one another... But because Jesus Christ was king, ruled as king by all kinds of people, uh, ruled as king by Rome, Rome even offered protection, and the apostles worked daily in the temple, which would lead me to believe that the treasury was now theirs. They were in charge of the treasury. But they may not have. They may have just let that all go to the Pharisees. But they worked daily in the temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. That that, And the, where did the bread come from? From the sacrifice of the people, the donations of the people. And, and what the apostles were, were and, and there are many of the early writings of the church tell us this, but nobody else is going to tell you but me. <laughs> Almost. There probably is somebody who will tell you. That the church took the place of the Levites. But not as we imagine the Levites to be. Or the Pharisees imagined the Levites to be, but as they were meant to be. They were these people that were separate, that belonged to God, that had no personal estate of their own, owned all things in common, and they were supposed to provide as a social safety net on a national level. I mean, every family should provide a social safety net for everybody in that family. And even... Local neighborhoods will help out people. I and mean, we do it here all the time. Help out elderly people. Uh, we've saved a couple of elderly women by uh, who fell and couldn't get up. And were going to freeze to death if we didn't show up. We've done that more than once already. <laughs> uh, and, and one of the times uh, why we even showed up at all was my wife just suddenly thought, I have to go. And she came in and asked me to go with her. And good thing because my wife couldn't have picked the lady up. And, and she was she was hypothermia when we found her. And it was getting colder. <laughs> but that's what they had to do on a national basis. Take care of one another. Had to be there for one another. 
all social welfare. That's what religion was. Religion is how you take care of the needy. And I repeat that. I repeated that in this morning show. I repeated it in lots of shows. But it's got to sink in. If your social welfare is coming from men who exercise authority, you're not going to be free. You're not operating according to the perfect law of liberty. You're certainly not operating according to faith, hope, and charity. And you're not following Christ. Got it? Write that down. If you're coveting your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority, you're doing the opposite of what Christ said to do. You're, he said we were not to be that way. You are that way. Now, when I tell people that, that uh, a lot of people, their brains just fog over, we get a deer in a headlight look, and they don't want to look any farther. But that's absolutely essential part of the gospel of the kingdom, and Christ is saying it over and over and over again. All the uh, apostles said it, uh, Peter said it, James said it, Paul said it. But people say, well, Paul said all I had to do is say you know, the magic words that I accept Lord Jesus Christ in my heart as my personal Savior and I'm saved. Now I, I am saved. I am going to heaven. No. That's not what Paul said. Oh, he said that in one place, but you're taking Paul out of the context. I mean, it's like the born again thing in, in John 3. That, yeah, unless you be born again, yeah, I'm born again. I can tell you the date and all this stuff. But if you go on and read, it says, no, but if you're still doing evil... You know, you're not really born again. It's just, you're just under a strong delusion. And what's evil? Asking men who exercise authority to go to your neighbor's house and take away from your neighbor so that you can have free education, whether it's paying off student loans or just going to public school. You're, you can imagine that you're still a good guy, but you're not doing good things. You're actually doing works of iniquity. Because not only are you taking from your neighbor, taking a bite out of your neighbor through the men who exercise authority, you're giving the men who exercise authority more authority. They're making choices for you. And because you don't have fervent charity. You may have a little charity, but you don't have fervent charity. At Pentecost, they had to have start having fervent charity right now because they were not going to get any benefits from the Pharisees. From the government of the Pharisees. From the government of Herod. Of course, Herod was dead. Jesus Christ was now on the throne. You could get from Jesus. But it's not entitlements. It's based on faith, hope, and charity. That's a huge difference. You're taking care of the needy. Providing education for the needy. You know, people who can't afford education for themselves. People who need help. People who fall down and they're freezing outside and nobody's coming. And they left their phone inside so they can't even call 911. And you go there and save their life. That That's Christianity. And it can't be just for the people you like. It has to be for people who... May not even be a part of your church. Because you have to love your neighbor. It doesn't say love the neighbor in your synod. <laughs> it says love your neighbor. You have to even love your enemy. That's another whole topic. But if you love your enemy and you love your neighbor, you will have power I cannot even describe. You will have the power of righteousness. Because that's the other thing you're supposed to be seeking. You're supposed to be thinking differently which is, I just told you how to think. 
you know, how Jesus said to think. You don't want to think like the Pharisees. You don't want to think about magic rituals or magic words. You say this and you're saved. That's all nonsense. Foolish women come in and preach that nonsense. And weak men say, okay, honey, whatever you say. That's not, that's not the kingdom of God. You're not going to be free with that attitude. You have to think differently. You have to, no, I'm not saying pick on your wife for thinking that. But you need to think like Christ. Your wife will catch up. And if you're the wife and your husband, the wife needs to think like Christ and the husband will catch up. They still keep the proper order, but you will be the light in the room. And with that light in the room, people will start saying, well, yeah, I've been weak. I, I, I have accepted a false gospel that wasn't out of the mouth of Christ because Paul preached Christ first. All of them, Christ, I mean, John, First John is telling you that any other doctrine, well, actually, is that in Second John, Third John? It's actually in all of them. But I, I just read it this morning in Third John. Really, one of the shortest epistles. It's actually to a guy, supposedly talking about a guy, was it Demetrius? I can't remember the name, actually. Now my creek is rusty. I, I, long time since I've been in school, but I, I go back to it. But it isn't important. But the, the name of the guy they're talking about is those who eat at the Temple of Jehovah. That's what the name means. It's not an actual guy. He's, he's speaking about people who eat at the Temple of Jehovah. And Paul talks about, you know, the, the tables of Satan. The, and, and that we're not to eat of. The ta- table of devils, he says. That we're not to eat of. This is what they had to start doing at, at Pentecost. They had to start eating of the tables of Christ. Well, John the Baptist has been setting them up. Jesus has been setting them up. So there was kind of an order to it. We actually knew how it worked. There was at least 120 people in the upper room that knew. And there was a lot more people out there in the congregations that knew. And so with the help of them, thousands, thousands transitioned. Because they get that baptism, they're not getting any more benefits from the, the golden treasury of the Pharisees. They're going to have to start taking care of themselves. Now, when Constantine started his church, he said everybody was going to have to get baptized. He didn't say repent and get baptized. He said just get baptized. Now, he was there was a certain repentant element to Constantine. He was, the, the social welfare system of the temples, which the temples were all government buildings providing social welfare, the free bread of Rome. You know, the Corbin, they actually have a word Corbin of Rome, but it's spelled different. Q-O-R-B-A-N. Which is similar to what you see in the Koran. This has always been around. This idea that religion was how you take care of the needy. Now you care for the needy. Which is why the New World Order wants to kill care. They had that play there, you know, I talked about that before. To kill care. They want to kill care in you. The quickest way to kill care in you is to shower you with gifts, gratuities, and benefits. Look at the black community. LBJ targeted the black community with his his uh, war on poverty. FDR didn't necessarily t- target the black community, but certainly the masses of poor targeted them during a depression that they created because of Woodrow Wilson. And the whole stage of bringing you into the bondage of Egypt, which is where you're at now. But you're there because you're not thinking like Christ. 
you have to start thinking like Christ. And that's different from what the churches have been telling you. And so that's repentance, thinking differently. But you also have to be seeking the righteousness of God, which is to take care of one another through charity, not taking care of one another through force. And the benefits you receive in such a government, because that is a form of government, it's a, it's a free form of government, it's a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, but it's the, it's the government of God, it's the kingdom of God, that you have to take care of one another through charity. And the benefits you get are not entitlements, you can only hope for them. Nobody has to feed you. They should feed you if you're dying. But if you're lazy, you should fast until work ethic comes on you. I always tell the story of the dog who was fat and lazy and listless. And the woman took her to the their little doggy, you know, Poochie, to the vet and said, you know, that my dog, he's so lifeless. He's not frisky. He's not jumping around. He's not... He just lays there all the time. What, is it, what should I do? And he says, leave him with me for three days. So he, she left him with him for three days. She missed him so much. came back on the third day. Oh, I've missed my little Poochie. Where is he? And, and they bring out Poochie. And he's just wagging his tail. And he's jumping around. And he wants to get out of the little cage and jump up on, you know, his, his master. And she says, what did what, what you do? What, what wonder drug did you give him to fix him? And she, he said, I didn't give him any drug. Well, you must have given him some sort of medicine or some therapy. No, no, I didn't, I didn't give him any medicine. Well, well, what'd you do? Why is he so alive? And she said, well, I didn't feed him for three days. I said, fasting is wonderful. <laughs> fasting is good. I haven't had breakfast yet. How, how about you? <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, the reality is, is that you may have to fast. From the benefits that are offered to you, the dainties of the rulers. You know, they talk about that in Proverbs, the dainties. If you sit and eat with a ruler and you be a man of appetite, put a knife to your throat because he, he serves you deceitful dainties. Dainties, which are deceitful meats. And Proverbs also tells you that, you know, he, he will, he's a snare. These benefits of gain at the expense of others is a snare. It's a trap. Yami Parks. She didn't understand it until she read Animal Farm. Well, Animal Farm is social welfare system where you, you bring everybody, you capture them. How do you catch a pig? You feed them. You feed them in, in one spot and he keeps coming and, and then you put a, slowly build a fence around that spot and then he finally comes and you shut the gate and now he's a domestic pig. <laughs> That's what's happened. You've been domesticated. and But you're not free anymore. Now, that, that hurts a lot of people. They, well, I'm free. I have inalienable rights. Well, you have debt. And you become merchandise. P- Peter said you'd become merchandise through your covetous practices. It's right there in the text. He even said that you'd curse your children through the same covetous practice. You'd be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Done deal. Already happened. What we're talking about is how to save yourself from that. It's trying to revolt. You've been revolting. That's what they call it, rebels re- revolting in the street. That you've been revolting against Christ. 
Because you've been coveting your neighbor's goods to the agency of government. And you've gone to churches who say that's okay. You're saved anyway. What liars? You've, you've chosen to believe the lie. Christ never said that. Paul never said He actually said people that are covetous you should have nothing to do with. So, what, what is this deal about fervent charity? You know, Abraham, Moses, John the Baptist, Jesus, the whole early church advocated the daily ministration for the needy of the Christian community that was dependent on charity alone. Charity alone. As a matter of fact, if you depended just a little bit on, you know, some government that exercises authority, you know, the benefactors who exercise authority, just going to help you out a little bit. That's not pure religion anymore. That's spotted religion. Because you... You get a little bit from these other temples, these other government buildings, these other men who exercise authority and take away from your neighbor. If you get a little bit from them, that's not pure religion. You're not practicing. None of these churches, maybe some of the Amish, I don't know, are not practicing pure religion. They actually tell everybody to go sign up for the Corbin of the Pharisees. Because the Corbin of the Pharisees was their social welfare system. Their social security. I mean, you you know, they have social insurance in Canada. And we have social security in the United States. And Australia's got some. Australia had it before we did. That not only brings you into bondage, entangles you again in the yoke of bondage, snares you. That, because it's deceitful means. And it makes you more subject to the rulers. Makes you merchandise. Makes you a surety for debt. Makes your children a surety debt. And not only does that, it alters the mental synapses of your brain. It does. It degenerates them so you, you can't even think like a free man. You can think like a rebel, but you can't think like a free man. I just saw, uh, the, uh, Hodge twins. Is that what they call themselves? You know, those two semi-black guys. I mean, they're they're black, but they're uh, according to them, they're like forty-five percent black, and they're other races. But they look pretty black. But anyway, that I mean, they're they're funny guys. But they they talk a lot of times. That they their mouth. Uh, you kiss your mama with that mouth. That they need to straighten up their language a little bit. That didn't. They don't need to. I would share it with my grandkids if they could keep their language a little clearer. But anyway, they just showed a video of some black ladies who got arrested at, you know, I don't know, Walmart or someplace. And they were fighting and macing each other and and uh, attacking employees in the store. And the cops were called and the cops tried to arrest them. And they, they started fighting the cops. The cops weren't actually going to arrest them. They were going to detain them, take them outside and discuss the matter because they were causing a public disturbance. They were going to get them outside. And they, I mean, they tried to kick them and they bite them and... And it was just ridiculous. And they, they were just like, what's the matter with these women? I'll lay you odds. I could be wrong. But I'll lay you odds. They didn't grow up with a double parent family. i lay you odds. They have welfare in their background. Because 
Like Polybius said, the people become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others institute the rule of force and violence. In other words, they force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare. And they themselves degenerate into perfect savages. They are literally given over to this other way of thinking. Which is exactly, you know, the gay agenda and all this. People are given over to this way of thinking. They they can't change themselves. They need help changing. Of course, the love of Christ would help them. But it has to be the real love of Christ. Not the self-righteous, judgmental love of Christ that we see in a lot of the churches. Now, the love of Christ is where you find it. I'm not excluding it. You may find it in some churches. But if they're telling you that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods through the agency of men who exercise authority, you know right away that's not the church established by Christ. That's the church established by Constantine. Because Constantine set that up. That's what Constantine was doing. That They got baptized all right. And they were supposed to start taking care of their charity to some degree by their own donations. And, and it wasn't going to be totally government funded anymore as it had been for a hundred or so years before that. They were going to have to start taking their own responsibility for their social welfare system. And he kind of jump-started it and said, oh, well, you get baptized because that's what... You know, like Ambrose. Ambrose, the first bishop of Milan, he didn't know anything about Christianity. He's already elected bishop. They found him in a brothel when they went looking for him. Because they were, why, why him? Because he was already doing it for the government. He was working for Caesar. He was working for Constantine. And so now he was going to have to do this new church thing, this Christian thing, where they were going to be supplying charity to take care of the needy of society. So he went to Constantine and said, I I have to go study this. Can I do this job? And they said, sure, you can go do that. And he says, no, I'm going to have to study how this works. uh, So I need a little time off because I don't know anything about Christianity. And so he goes and studies and he comes up with an idea of Christianity that led him to go into the Senate and say that anybody who doesn't follow Christianity like I have figured out needs to be persecuted by the Senate and exiled. And, of course, we see all kinds of these exiles in the days to follow. But that's another whole topic. But the reality is he wasn't a Christian. And we know that the Church of Constantine was not pure religion because the first thing Constantine did was jumpstart this church with Millions of dollars, not out of his pocket, but millions of dollars that he stole from other people, like his partner, who he killed and killed all of his family, so his partner had nobody to inherit his wealth, and so Constantine took it. And so he had all this extra wealth, and he says, well, I'll give it to the church. That's blood money. That's that's how the church of Constantine started. Now, it looked a lot like Christianity in many ways. It certainly looks a lot like Christianity today. Because a lot of the same holidays and everything that were pagan holidays have drifted over. But I don't really care about whether you celebrate Christmas or not or all that stuff. I mean, I'll talk about it and all that stuff. But the critical thing is, are you living by faith, hope, and charity? Are you living with the mind of Christ? Have your mind changed and you realize now that we have to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity and even love our enemy? What does that mean? What does that look like? That's what we need to know. Are we doing that? Because 
It was their pure religion of the early church that brought them into the Christian conflict with the public religion and the covetous practices of the world. Because that word world there, you know, four words in the Greek language in the New Testament that are all translated world. There's five that could be. Maybe six that could be. But the word that they have there, that we're not supposed to be part of the world, we're not supposed to have our religion spotted by the world, that is defined in your religious concordance as the constitutional order and system of government. Because that's where the men who exercise authority get the money to, by exercising authority, to provide you with those benefits. That's a covetous practice. That's public religion. That's legal charity. And that destroys society. It ruined Rome. And according to Polybius, it was going to degenerate the people until they found once more a monarch and a king. So the word charity is not found in the Old Testament. But free will offerings is found. The word offerings, sometimes from the same Hebrew word, is found. And which also Corbin is found. Corbin was an offering, a sacrifice. And, and like I say, you know, that, that one word sacrifice, there's actually, I say one word sacrifice, there's actually a couple of words that are translated uh, sacrifice. Uh, Zebach is translated sacrifice. It, it sort of means sacrifice of righteousness, sacrifice of strife, sacrifice to dead things. Uh, that, that, that's why they list in the concordance. They even call it a thank offering, which is a Eucharist is thanksgiving. Thanks offering, thanksgiving, see? And and that's called Zeba, which is Zayn Biat Chet. And so what's Zayn Biat Chet mean? Well, we'll look at that some other time. But the other word is Ola. Yeah, Ola. <laughs> Ola is a burnt offering. They call it a burnt offering. Whole burnt offering. Uh, it's actually, supposedly means a stairway. What a burnt offering was, was you gave it up entirely. That's, that's what a burnt offering is. It's burnt up to you. But how do you take care of the poor with burnt up sheep? You don't. That's not what they were doing. And again, you have to go back and look at our article on sophistry to find out what that, what that all meant and how that all worked. But, Anyway, so, but they don't have the word charity. We use the word charity. And that can create some kind of confusion because you think there was no charity in the Old Testament. Tithing, what, like I said, was a form of charity. And, uh, you know, agape is the word we see translated love, but we also see it translated charity. So, you know, like I say, when Paul says it, he, they often translate it charity. When Jesus says it, they often translate it love. But it's the same word. Because love requires sacrifice. Any, every mother knows that. Uh, husbands know that. I mean, real love. You know, I mean, like the, a, bird, a cat loves a bird. He's not going to sacrifice. He's going to sacrifice the bird. That's, that's a different kind of love. That's lust. <laughs> he lusts after the bird. He doesn't love the bird. But real love is about sacrifice. It's about charity. And charity is about sacrifice. 
and tithing was that sacrifice that you gave to the ministers to help take care of the needy of your society. So in the New Testament, we see words like agape and love and charity. We also see words like sacrifice. And we see the words like gift and give hundreds of times. This idea of giving. Now, taxation is sacrifice too. But it's not a free will sacrifice. It's like that sacrifice, that forced sacrifice of Saul. And so, death and taxes, in the sense of death and sacrifice, are with us forever. But in a free society, the sacrifice is free will. And in a not-so-free society, it's forced. So, if you want to be in a free society, you have to stop thinking in terms of forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. To provide you with free bread and circuses. Uh, the gifts, gratuities, and benefits that come with legal charity. You have to wean and fast yourself from that because right now that is destroying liberty. Plutarch said that. The greatest destroyer of liberty is, the, is he who spreads amongst the people gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And, and like I said, it not only centralizes power in the hands of the government, but it degenerates the masses. And on our page on Fervent Charity, we have links to all kinds of articles that will lead you to it. The unrighteous mammon is the entrusted wealth that comes by taking away from your neighbor by force. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not legal to take away from your neighbor by force. If it's okay to take away from your neighbor by force to benefit you, then it's okay for your neighbor to take away from you to benefit himself. So now you have a dog-eat-dog environment and the dog is returned to his vomit (laughs) and everybody is depending on the dainties of rulers and the wages of unrighteousness and they all have one purse which is socialism or communism because they're all greedy for gain at the expense of others and and you need to repent of that because that's a covetous practice that is a snare will make you merchandise because it is the way in which the table of devils is set by that system of desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And if you want to go back to pure religion, you have to stop thinking of the church as a religion. And religion is something you do. It's a pious duty to God and your fellow man. But anyway, we're going to have to continue this. And I really haven't even got hardly anywhere in this subject. So this is going to take, but this is important. If you want to be free, if you want to find salvation in this world or the next, you need to turn around and think a different way. You have to go another way. You have to start caring about others. That's not necessarily easy. It takes a lot of forgiveness and patience. But until you learn that, join us on the network and may peace be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. 
1-800-273-4840. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.